I'd like you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 11. And also Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 to 34. But first we're going to read Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 11, starting in verse 16. Therefore say, thus saith the Lord God, although I have set, I have cast them afar off among the nations, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them a little sanctuary in the countries where they come. Therefore say, thus saith the Lord God, I will even gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where ye have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And they shall come there, and they shall take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and will give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, keep my ordinances, and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God." Certainly when we look at this passage, which really tells a story, and we've been telling a story through Leviticus 23, and we started in our story at Passover, a one-time event, the blood of the Lamb, Charlton Heston against Yule Brenner. And we noted that when I see the blood, I'll pass over. And so it was through the shed blood of that Lamb that Jewish people celebrate every year and have been and have a hope that one day, maybe not this year as the Seder ends next year in Jerusalem, but immediately following the Passover is the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we noted that Unleavened Bread teaches sanctification, a setting apart. And these people, these chosen people, the apple of God's eye, were set apart immediately after they were redeemed. And we noted that right after, the day after the first day of unleavened bread is first fruits, and noted that the Jewish people were an agricultural people and the first fruits of the barley. And from there they would count 50 days and there would be first fruits of wheat. Shavuot, Pentecost, and a period of time passes, and Rosh Hashanah, trumpets, the trumpets are blown. We heard about the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and noted that Abraham had waited a hundred years for the promised son, and God tested him again. He passed the test every single time and was willing to offer up his son. And certainly as believers, we think of God the Father taking his, offering his son, the second person willingly coming to the earth, incarnating on the earth and dying. The difference with Abraham and Isaac between God the Father and God the Son was Abraham only had to get ready to slit his son's throat and there instead was a ram caught in a thicket. And then we noted ten days later, as Jewish people are repenting, 
Repentance is on their mind at, at Rosh Hashanah. And they throw leavened bread into a creek or stream and desire their sins to be far away removed from them comes the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16, the high priest going into the Holy of Holies just once a year, first for himself, then for the sins of his people. And then we come to Tabernacles. And Tabernacles is a time to rejoice. And I read these passages in Ezekiel because they forecast that time of scattering. Look, my people wrote the book on sin. Disobedience, stiff-necked and hard-hearted. Indeed, there are many people, and I've heard the expression, oh, those Jews, oh, those Jews. Fair enough. We deserve it. But whatever we might be corporately, and you could read it for yourself, I'd submit to you that though we wrote the book, you're just as guilty as we are. Whatever we did, whatever you find in Scripture as a corporate group, we could probably find in each one of our own hearts. And so, as we think of these days, the scattering of the Jewish people, but then the return, that's what Trumpets is all about. There'll be a day they return, and I believe that day is now. Remember, we, I, I shared with you, in 1938, the Friends of Israel was named ten years before Israel became an, a nation. Why is that? Because people of faith simply read the text, and though there was not even a hope, practically speaking, of a country, of Israel, there was a real hope biblically, a promise that was given. And so we have witnessed through the years, way, starting way back in the late 1800s, a return to the land, very similar to the way it's described here in Ezekiel. They're returning. But there'll be a time, and we believe Tabernacles depicts it, a time when they'll be reconciled to God, that their stony heart will become a fleshly heart, a circumcised heart heart. You know, in uh, John chapter 3, Nicodemus had a hard time understanding what it meant to be born again. And Jesus really rebuked him for it. He should have understood as a teacher in Israel. And you could go back to the Old Testament text. Uh, and by the way, I don't like to use the word Old Testament. Now, I'm an old man. That's okay. Old man is fine. But old is generally negative. And if you don't believe me, turn on a commercial. Nobody watches commercials anymore. We, we DVR things. We watch them on Netflix, etc. We, we don't see commercials. But when you do, understand that products that are real old always get new and improved. Because old is bad. And when we say the Old Testament text to a Jewish person, it's really a mild insult even if you're not really trying to insult them. And the reason is they have no regard for the New Testament. So when you say, oh, that's in the Old Testament, we have the New Testament. Just be careful to realize that if there was no Old Testament, you wouldn't have a New Testament. I use the word Older Testament just to compare. One's older, and then there's the New Testament. 
all of it's important. And so the Jewish people were promised, and we see in Ezekiel, that God's going to circumcise their heart, taking the idea of blood, of open-heart surgery. And you see, Nicodemus didn't associate being born from above, something that only God can do, with a circumcised heart, in Jeremiah 4 and verse 4, or in Deuteronomy 30, and thinking that God does that as well. Now, turn back with me to Leviticus, chapter 23. Leviticus 23, starting in verse 33. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. On the eighth day shall be a holy convocation unto you, and you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It is a solemn assembly, and ye shall do no servile work therein. These are the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering, a meal offering, a sacrifice, drink offerings, everything upon this day, besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, and beside the gifts, and beside all the vows, and beside all your free will offerings which you give unto the Lord, also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month. When ye have gathered the fruit of the land, ye shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath, and ye shall take of the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of thick trees, willows the brook, and ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statue forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month, and you shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And Moses declared unto the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. Wow. Just to give you an idea of modern Judaism, tabernacles is a time to rejoice. It is a harvest in the fall. There is a desire for rain to come. And in Israel, rain, the country is very dependent on rain. And certainly you have the spring and the harvest of the barley and the wheat. But then you've gone through a hot summer. The land is so dependent on rain. And so, Rosh Hashanah, the first of Tishrei, the seventh month, ten days later, comes Yom Kippur, and when the sun goes down on the Day of Atonement, immediately, people who don't know, are they in the Book of Life? Are they in the Book of Judgment? As soon as the sun goes down, they forget about all that, and they begin to build their booths. Because five days from then, they're going to have their booths, their sukkah, as they celebrate Sukkot, uh, a day that has a number of different names. It's the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, it's the Feast of Ingathering, it's the Day of Assembly. Their eighth day is Simchat Torah, another ch word. Raincoats or umbrellas are required. 
Simchat Torah. Oh, how I remember growing up on that eighth day of, of, of the feast, an added day. In the synagogue, there'd be a bima, an, a raised uh, stage, if you will. And on the bima would be an ark. And in the ark are the scrolls. The rabbi would get up and in a liturgy where everybody knew when to stand, they rise. An honored person, somebody who's uh, given a special opportunity for a mitzvah, a good deed, will rise and go in front of the ark which has curtains and open the curtains and open the ark and display the number of scrolls that they might have. The, the richer the synagogue, the more scrolls they have. And as the people are standing, this honored person will hold the scrolls and it will be decorated with silver and with gold and with bells and walk around the synagogue. And at Simchat Torah, as we celebrate the Torah, standing before it, people will rush up to the Torah with their talit, their fringes, and they will kiss, first put their fringes on the scroll and then kiss it as a sign of a love for God's Word. It's interesting that we could say Wow, they have this amazing outward display of love for the Word. They have the Word, many of them, in their homes. I can't remember a single time in my home where any member of my family ever, outside of a liturgy, which I did for a number of years, outside of a liturgy, ever sitting down to read the Bible as a text. Now, lest you say, oh, those poor Jewish people, I've been in Christian homes where they lined the bookshelves or now with Logos or whatever uh, smartphone or iPad that you have. They have the word near and don't read it. But Simchat Torah, a wonderful time for this period of time. And at this particular time, the Jewish people build booths. Now, this is a holiday that can explain Alice and me really well. Well, at least me. Camping. Now, I come to the camp. I'm glad to come to the camp. I've come to camps through the years. Uh, I had a little experience in camp. It was a day camp, Jewish day camp. And for the first four hours in the morning, I had to learn Jewish history. I had to read Hebrew. I had to study the Chumash, which is a... Uh, a commentary on the text and then in the afternoon we got to swim but our people camped around for 40 years I had this discussion with a person who loves to camp they you know they pull their camper and I say camping camping's not for me my people wandered 40 years that was enough I like Holiday Inn oh no it's not like that we have a wonderful place and uh, I, I could show you pictures, and they did, and look, we have our own bathroom, and, and look at how nice everything is. I said, you schlep your bathroom wherever you go, right? No, yeah. And so there's times you have to take care of that at a special place, right? Well, yeah. Jews don't schlep their stuff around. 
We just don't do that. We're not interested in that. But once a year, we do a mild camp out. A mild one. The house is there. You can build your sukkah, your sukkah, three walls against a house or building. It must have an open roof. You've got to be able to see the stars. You've got to be able to eat meals, at least your meals in there. And if you want, you could sleep outdoors. Are there Jewish people who do that? Yeah, yeah, there are. But most of them are content. Picnic in the sukkah, that's nice. You bring your food out. Then go back inside and sleep. It's a reminder for us who sustained us all that time, who kept us alive in the wilderness, who provided the food that we needed, who made it possible that nothing, our shoes would not wear out for that whole time. Jewish people at Sukkah, at, at Sukkot, stay in their Sukkah and are reminded of God's provision for them. There are species, we read about it, there is first the uh, lulav, which is a, it's, it's comprised of three specific trees, the palm branch, the myrtle branch, and the willow branch. They're wound together, and it's a big, long sheaf is the best way to describe it. And then there's a etrog in Hebrew, citron, we might say it. It looks like a lemon, but it doesn't have the taste of a lemon. It has a wonderful fragrance. And because this is a time of rejoicing, the Jewish people in a liturgy will actually shake. They hold the etrog in one hand and the lulav in the other. And before God, they shake the lulav to the east, to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. Why? There's a prayer, please God provide rain so that we might have rain over the winter to supply the needs that we have. Very important. Also, interestingly enough, there's a book that is read. And the book that is read is Ecclesiastes. Now, why would you read at a time of rejoicing Ecclesiastes? The rabbis tell us that that book is pessimistic. You're telling me. Those of you who've read Ecclesiastes, I remember uh, back in 19... 78, 1978, Alice and I were in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and I needed, I was attending Bible College in Philadelphia, and I needed a Christian ministry. And I went to the pastor uh, to ask him if he had anything available. I was in Bible College. He said, oh yeah, you are now our youth leader. That was a pretty bold thing to do. I had never done youth work in my life. I was only a Christian a couple years. Well, I said, well, at least I have Alice. Well, then Alice was pregnant, and she, she went the first couple weeks and didn't go the rest of the time. Well, what was I going to teach? And to me, the book of Ecclesiastes covers it all. There's Solomon. Solomon says, vanity, vanity, soap bubbles, soap bubbles. All is soap bubbles. Well, who's talking? Solomon, smartest guy around richest guy around, most powerful guy around. He, there is no one like him. And he proceeds 
to tell you what his life was like as he pursued anything that he wanted. And isn't that the desire that many of us have? I, I, I confess. Wouldn't you like to be rich? Wouldn't you like to be able to do whatever you want? Have you ever seen, if those of you raised in Christian homes, your friends, they're pursuing all kinds of things, and your parents say, no, you can't do that? Oh, brother. Solomon tried everything. Drinking, women. I got one, and I'm happy. 700 plus, one every day for two years, is too much service. That means trouble. But he had it. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, he comes to the conclusion, a wonderful conclusion, the fear of God, fearing God. And so Jewish people are told by the rabbis to read Ecclesiastes at this time because it is so pessimistic and it's a good contrast to the rejoicing that we have experienced at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, interestingly enough, there is a tradition, and it took place in the Second Temple period, and it's significant. It's called the Water Libation. And the Water Libation, to simplify it, was a, was a procedure that every year the high priest would do. They'd go to the They'd go from the temple down the Kidron Valley to the Pool of Siloam, come back to the temple with water, with water, and pour the water. And the people were rejoicing as they poured the water. On top of the temple were four 75-foot menorahs. We're told in extra-biblical writing that the light from those four menorahs were so bright that it lit every single house in Jerusalem. Now with that as a backdrop, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, and in verse 37, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So here was a tradition. It was already during the time of Christ. It wasn't a biblical thing as far as Leviticus is concerned, but it happened every tabernacles, every tabernacle. And so as the water libation ceremony, where the priest and a whole with cymbals and lyres and great loud music, loud music, Jewish music, loud music, just so you know, my preference. Loud music as, as they made the procession. What did Jesus do? He used that period of time to teach about the Holy Spirit. And we've been hearing about that each morning. And he was using something they were familiar with to prophesy of something that would take place shortly 
after he was gone. But that's not the only one. Because in John chapter 8, and in John chapter 8 and verse 12, Then spoke Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest witness of thyself, thy witness is not true. And he told them, Oh, yes, it is. And what he was doing was taking the illustration of what was going on with that water libation as well as the 75-foot menorahs lit at night against the backdrop of Herod's temple, which had a facade that reflected the gold, the light upon the gold lit the whole city. And it was with that backdrop that Jesus Christ said, Hey, I am the light of the world. Tabernacles is the last of the seven feasts. It tells a story. And in this story, there's consummation. There's, there's a, a kingdom that is going to come as, as prophesied. And if you turn to Zechariah chapter 14, you're going to see at the, at the tabernacle, 70 sacrifices take place. And the rabbis say those 70 uh, sacrifices depict the 70 Gentile nations. And it's interesting that in Zechariah chapter 14, and starting in verse 16, And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, this is, this is at the end of the, of the tribulation period. Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, is coming to establish the kingdom. And He does. Which come against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In Zechariah 8, an interesting prophecy. Ten Gentiles will grab the clothing of a Jewish person and want to worship in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles is the reminder, from a Jewish point of view, of the kingdom, the, the wonderful end of the story, looking forward to the king, looking forward to next year in Jerusalem. It is Tabernacles where we rejoice. What a blessing to think of that story. Well. From a Christian point of view, how can we apply the things that we have heard concerning what I have told you time and time again, this belongs to Israel? It belongs to Israel. But that doesn't mean that we can't learn from it. Passover. Jesus' cousin said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Passover should remind us, as Jewish people celebrate it, should remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Unleavened bread, a sinless offering. Jesus Christ had no sin in Him. The perfect sacrifice offered on our behalf. First fruits, 
resurrection. It was on first fruits that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Jewish people believe, at least observant ones, believe in the resurrection. You can go to the Mount of Olives today, and there are, well, first of all, it's a wonderful honor, a wonderful honor to be buried there, but there are actually some who are buried standing up. Why? Because when the resurrection takes place and you're already on the Mount of Olives, you're the first out. First out. Hey, that's commitment. That's sincere. And so the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and so we offer the first and the best. That's what we talked about. God offered His Son, His only Son. And because He is the first fruits, He's our guarantee. Just as the Jewish people had their barley and their wheat 50 days later, they offered it to God. They believed that more would follow, that they could use. And just as Jesus was the first fruits, it ensures more will follow. Well, who are the more that follow? Well, we just celebrated some. And we could be ones who go up in our body alive. Or we could be in our grave where our presence is with Him, but at the resurrection, our bodies will come up to be with Him. Fifty days later, in Acts chapter 2, the church was born, and we noted the two loaves that had leaven in them, and were reminded that I, as a Jewish person, many of you as Gentiles, come together as one body, certainly with leaven. You know, over the past few days, I've I've caught up with some and met some new ones. One thing I know for sure, if you're attending your church, it's not perfect. There is no such thing as a perfect church. And wherever it is you're going, if you're dissatisfied with your church, you know you can find one better. And you might be able to find one you agree with more. But I'm telling you, no matter where you go, there's going to be trouble. Not because of you specifically. There's trouble. There's trouble everywhere. The discouraging thing to me is, it's astounding to me how many people, when they get discouraged one time with their church, say they're all that way and they don't go anymore. They sit in their living rooms, turn on Charles Stanley or David Jeremiah or whoever they like, and that's their church. Shame on you. Shame on you. To forsake the assembling of yourselves because you weren't happy, that's a pretty bad thing. You know, in the kingdom, he rules with a rod of iron. So if you're un unhappy, he'll settle the dispute, and it'll be over. Well, the church is born with Pentecost, and then there's time. We're in the church age right now. There's time that passes. But then the trump, the last trump, we talked about the hundred toots that the Jewish people have. That's the last trump. And when that last trump sounds, when that last Gentile comes to Christ, when? I have no idea. But when it happens, boom, in a twinkling of an eye, we'll be out of here. And what a day that will be. And once that takes place, the Antichrist seals a covenant, and we think of the time period between the Feast of Trumpets, the ten days as it were, and the Jewish people during that 10-day period are trying to uh, think about and repent from their sin, a period of time of tribulation. And we noted that at Yom Kippur, 
the constant phrase, affliction of the soul. Affliction of the soul. Trust me, during this period of time, there'll be much affliction of the soul. And as dark as that day will be, God will have his light. 144,002 witnesses. I don't believe, as some amillennialists believe, as they read Revelation, where the two witnesses are the Old Testament and the New Testament. I've read that before. No, they're real people. And during a, a very difficult period of time, the truth is going to be spoken. And they'll be protected three and a half years. The 144,000, no way anybody can stop them. No way. They can call fire down. They're going to be protected and uncompromisingly preach the truth. And we're told people from every tribe, kindred, nation, and tongue are going to believe. And then, although most believers will be martyred, most of them killed, God will preserve a remnant of people who believed and got through the tribulation alive and come into what is regarded as the Feast of Tabernacles, the Millennial Kingdom, a thousand-year rule. And in Isaiah 65, and that's where I'd like to close, Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65, starting in verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy, and I'll rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more in it an infant of days, nor an old man that has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old. If a person dies at a hundred years old in this period of time, God has judged them. Because they did something worth death. But most people are going to live a long time. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. And they shall not build another habitat, and they shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like a bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. What a day that's going to be. And in these seven feasts, we in the church of Jesus Christ can joy for Jewish people celebrating, can use these days to wish them a happy new year, to wish them a wonderful holiday, to tell them that we're aware of these things from the book of Leviticus. I will tell you this, if you communicate to a Jewish friend and quote from the book of Leviticus, they will probably say something like this, man, you are more familiar with my Bible than I am. And what was originally intended by God was for us to be a light to the Gentiles has what Paul says today, you making us jealous.
That's exactly what happened to me. First person I ever met who was a believer was a Gentile. I was jealous. I didn't know how to solve it at first, but I knew he had something that I didn't have. And I hope as we hear in the morning messages and these evening messages that we'll, that, that'll be our desire, to live a life in such a way that people will look at us and say, I want what he or she has. Tabernacles, rejoicing, what a day that will be. Heavenly Father, thank you. We approach the throne today knowing you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know that you are the living God. And we know that there's no God like you. We live in an age where proclaiming truth could be regarded as hateful, could be regarded as narrow-minded. Oh God, I pray that each one of us would love the way you love, but also stand for truth. We're reminded what the Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Lord, as we've seen these feasts, we realize that you had a prescribed way in which your people were to come to you, and that if they missed it, if they didn't do it, that they were held in judgment. Indeed, Lord, you are righteous and holy as much as you are loving. So, Lord, we pray you'd use us in our sphere of influence to be a blessing and an encouragement and to stand for the truth wherever we go, knowing there'll be a time one day when we will rejoice together. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.